From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. Listening to Delta Dispatches, we're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome to the first episode of 2021. I'm glad that we're no longer doing episodes in 2020 and hoping that, you know, this next year we can get back to a sense of you know, normalcy, safety, all of those good things, right? Simone, we survived 2020 just barely. (laughs) Ours is off to a little rocky start, but yeah, I mean, that's expected a little hangover from 2020, but um, I'm with you, Jacques. We have so much to look forward to in 2021 on so many different fronts. And so um, I'm going to try to keep that positive momentum up. Absolutely. I mean, well, there's certainly no shortage of news uh, announcements, progress that's happening um, that we'll be able to touch on in in this episode and coming episodes. So it's a new year, but the work has not stopped. Uh, We hopefully we all got a nice restful break and whatever lingering elements of 2020 are are carrying over into 2021. Let's just hope those end quickly. I will give a shout out. um, You know, we did receive some nice notes uh, over the break. Some folks that have been listening to the show, um, reached out either on LinkedIn or other platforms. Wait, real folks? Oh yeah, yeah. Folks not related to us? How does this how does this happen? Exactly. <laughs> not our neighbors, you know, not not our significant others. Um but but yeah, it's been great to get feedback on the show. Um if you have suggestions or feedback, you can always feel free to email us at info at Mississippi River Delta.org. We're Happy to consider your, your suggestions, um, but love hearing from our listeners. And thank you all so much for following us on this exciting journey that is Delta Dispatches. And we're excited to kick off 2021 Delta Dispatches with some great guests that we've had on the show before. We have a lot of uh, good news to talk to them about. So why don't you kick us off, Simone, with our f- first guest of 2021. Yes, what a, what an honor. What an honor to be our first guest of 2021 and keep up that positive momentum. But we have a repeat offender, Dr. Robert Twilley on the show with us. He's currently the executive director of the Louisiana Sea Grant Program and he's a professor over at LSU's College of the Coast and Environment. Dr. Twilley, um, I'll call you Robert cuz I can cuz I've known you so long. <laughs> You let's keep it really simple. (laughs) So I was trying to think about, and we might've talked about this on a previous show, but I was trying to think about how long I've known you. And I think that I've known you since the time that I started working at Restore Retreat. So that would be about 16 years. So um, I count you as one of my oldest Restore Retreat friends. So that is some kind of distinguishment. <laughs> yeah, well, <clears throat> well, I, what I remember is, uh, um, in fact, I think I sent you this picture uh, of a meeting of Louisiana Speaks. And I think that's where I distinctly remember sitting around a table 
with a whole group there, restore retreat with this huge, you know, you know, all these maps and stuff. And we started talking about the coast after Katrina. Yep. I was going to say, right after, after 2005. And so, um, it's certainly been a great thing to be your friend this long and to see everywhere that, um, you've been and all the work that you've done. But Jacques and I opened the show with this about talking about our gear, but is your six days of 2021 going okay so far? Yeah, it's been it's been good. I mean, you know, it's good to get back to focus on some things that we we want to accomplish, and so um, I'm pretty excited. Well, you decided that there was no better way to end 2020 than go out with a big old giant bang. So um, tell us, you made uh, some professional announcement at the end of 21, telling everybody that you are actually going to step down as the executive director of Louisiana Sea Grant. So uh, that's, that's right. <laughs> well, congratulations on an amazing tenure. You're only the third is that right? Executive director Third. in 53 years. That's right. That's right. I, I'm actually the second longest because I'm, I um, served about two years longer than Chuck Wilson. So I'm the second <laughs> longest serving. Of course, uh, Jack Van Lothick was the original director and, and uh, one was one of the longest serving Sea Grant directors in the history of Sea Grant. Um, I think there's only one other Sea Grant program that's had a director longer, and that was Hawaii, oh, uh, than Jack Van Lothick. <laughs> and uh, I mean, come but, on, yeah, um, I bet you Hawaii. Yeah, and it, but, but you know, it it was. I guess the way I've explained it to people is that, you know, wearing more than you know, wearing a couple of hats when you're younger is okay, but when you're trying to wear more than a couple of hats, um, you know, I've been five years on the Chesapeake Bay. I actually just turned uh, 35 years here in Louisiana. That's a 40 year history or 40 year career doing coastal science and being very much engaged. And so um, I've got a couple of big projects. In fact, LSU should announce this week, a very large project with Erdic that I'm very excited about, uh, which is the Engineering Research and Development Center. I, I think everyone knows up in Vicksburg their research and development center. And um, so that's going to kick off. In fact, it's already uh, kicked off. And so doing that and see Grant and trying to teach and just it's, it's got to be a little little much. And I have my NASA project that I you know, Wait, don't, we'll, don't, don't we'll talk, talk about, about that about. yet. I want to hold off on that. I want to keep it as a, as a teaser. So um, I, I will say we, I, for the first time, surprisingly, I went to, to Erdic, um, in in the fall i had never been there and it's fascinating it's it's like plunked in the middle of little old vicksburg and they're doing some really really amazing work there we actually had a chance to go in right before they kind of went on another full lockdown but they do some really fascinating stuff up there. So I'm excited for you and whatever that next step is. Um, we are going to talk a little bit about how that involves NASA. So um, we also want to talk about another initiative that, that you decided to kick off again before the holidays and the National Estuarine Research Reserve. Tell us a little bit about what that NUR is, like in general, and then why you want to bring it to Louisiana. Yeah, I have a, a little history um, with the National Estuarine Research Reserve System. I guess the third system it's, uh, that was organized uh, was at Rookery Bay, Florida, on the Gulf Coast. Uh, it's uh, down near Naples, Florida, southeast. 
or southwest part of Florida. Um, I just finished my PhD work at Rookery Bay, and uh, all of a sudden they showed up and said, well, we're designating this as a National Estuarine Research Reserve. And um, and so I've watched it grow. That was uh, 1976, eight, 1978. I think the program started in 1974. Uh, it's under the Office of Coastal uh, Management uh, within NOAA. Sea uh, Grant is actually in the Office of Atmosphere and Research. Um, the NEARS program is under the Coastal Zone Management uh, program. And so, um, you know, what, it's a place where they actually dedicate uh, these estuaries for research and education and outreach. And there are 34 programs, uh, I think, now across the, you know, 34 Sea Grant programs. I think there are 29 National Estuarine Research Reserves across the nation. Um, and they really, um, I think, are distinguished in the fact that they are a specific place uh, for education and research and monitoring and long-term uh, research programs with facilities. I asked the, what I think is, it's not just a program, but it's a program with facilities that can enhance uh, the mission. And so uh, I've always felt it's, it's such a great program. It had such an impact on my career. I've seen it impact so many other career of young scientists, faculty that we've hired who did the work at National Estuarine Research Reserves. The education program at Rookery Bay is phenomenal. If you ever get a chance to go see that facility. Um, and so I just, it just has so much to offer. And we're the only coastal ocean coastal state without a National Estuarine Research Reserve. And, and, and part of the, um, I think attraction is that um, you know, it's a NOAA state partnership. It's actually managed by the state, just like our Sea Grant program. We manage our program not so much to serve NOAA, uh, but we manage our state program that's a partnership with NOAA to serve our state. You know, we, we, we manage Sea Grant uh, to address the issues of Louisiana. And these National Estuarine Research Reserve, while they are a partnership with NOAA, their programs are established to uh, help enhance research and monitoring and education uh, for Louisiana. And since we're such a remote area, wherever we put this facility, uh, it just will help us tell the story, get public, get eight, you know, K through 12 students out to see the story that we have to tell. But what is also so important, um, and I found this to be such a um, important aspect of, of Sea Grant Director is, it, is that I also have a chance to tell our story up at the national level. And, and so, you know, um, we're not the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> we're not the Everglades. And, and it's amazing how hard it is. To, as you know, you've done this, uh, and all of us that have gone up to Washington, try to talk about the unique aspects and challenges and, of, of a delta that, and, and estuaries that are connected to a major river the productivity. It, it, and, you know, I remember my former major professor, the first time he came to visit me when I, uh, I in, at, in Lafayette, and we went down um, to the coast, and he just couldn't believe that he could look for miles and miles and miles and see nothing but wetlands. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a unique uh, coastal setting. And we get to tell our story at the national level. That's so exciting. Yeah, I mean, that's 
great, exciting news to start, you know, 2021 with. And I was surprised to see that of all the coastal states, Louisiana was one of the few that currently doesn't have one of these reserves, you know, especially given, as you said, how dynamic and distinct our coast is. So definitely an exciting development for Louisiana. What are some of the programs or, you know, kind of benefits that you would foresee coming to Louisiana and to the people doing work down here um, by having one of these national estuarine research reserves? Yeah, well, again, I want to uh, emphasize, you know, the fact that we will, it's a, it's a focus on a place in order for, for us to tell our narrative about how our system works. And, and we get to tell that story to uh, kids that are in grades K through 12. We get to tell that story and organize it and tell it uh, to, uh, uh, to the public. There, you know, the idea of having an interpretive center. Um, and there are facilities for us to enhance our ability to tell that story at the spot. It's not telling the story in, in the classroom, but bringing kids you know, Texas at their National Estuarine Research Reserve, they have what they call a floating classroom. You know, I love that. It's fantastic. It's one of the most popular uh, aspects for school children to go uh, take a trip out, uh, go to Dolphin Island. You know, they have a phenomenal uh, education uh, outreach program. And so it's a place for us to enhance that. Uh, it's a place to focus our research and our questions. Um, so that we have a long-term, I've, I've been part of the, what's called the Long-Term Ecological Research Program in the Everglades. Um, and you know, having these long-term dedicated uh, fa uh, facilities for monitoring. Now we have the Coastal Reference Monitoring System, the CRIMS is one of the most phenomenal uh, monitoring systems in the United States, in, in the world, I would challenge. And, uh, but now you know, this would give facilities uh, around a place where we would have you know, those CRIM stations for the long-term monitoring. And my final point is, is that we would be partners with the other estuarine research reserves to compare our data. And I go back to the fact that when people talk about estuaries, right now our data point is not in that narrative. <laughs> so Chesapeake Bay and Everglades and everybody else in California, they get to tell their story of how an estuary works. We want to be able to have our data point in that, that history of how uh, deltas work. So I, I think that's really important. So, so Robert, how do you, Louisiana is so distinct in general, and then from, from border to border, crazy distinct, um, Chenier to the central, to the Atchafalaya Delta, to, you know, the, the Mississippi River Delta, to the Pontchartrain Delta. Basic, like how how does site selection work for this yeah. NER process? Yeah, that's a it's well, it, NOAA has guidelines number one, so we're not starting from scratch. Um, and those guidelines, uh, you know, we'll, we have a website. You can go up to our website, and and we have actually connections to the National Estuarine Research Reserve Program. Connections to look at what the guidelines are. Um, you know, number one is we have to. Uh, convince uh, NOAA that we have a unique setting. I don't think that's a, an, an issue compared to other estuarine research reserves. Um, I do think we, we have to make a commitment that uh, to long-term education research and, and uh, public outreach uh, at the location. 
uh, you know, there are, since there's long-term reserves, there's this concept of integrity. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, we have, that's probably one of our biggest challenges is, you know, the integrity of our, our coast relative to it serving the purpose of a long-term reserve. Uh, you have to have uh, public lands and particularly state lands uh, that are part of the reserve with the state waters uh, that actually form what they call the core area. And, and so, you, you know, they're like Breton Sound. Breton Sound has very little state lands. Uh, go to Calcasieu, very few state lands and, and now state water bottoms. So there are zones uh, that if you think about the long-term integrity, you think about the narrative of, of how the Delta works, you think about, um, you know, where you have these long-term uh, commitments uh, in state lands. And, uh, you know, all of those become factors uh, where certain strengths say in your proximity to uh, schools so that you can get kids out to the site versus isolation where it's more natural and there's very little influence of human, uh, you know, landscape changes. Um, those start to balance one another out. And at some point, you know, if we get two or three sites that we think, you know, meet the balance, we're going to have to select one that um, uh, as a combination of serving education, serving research, and being a unique feature of the Delta, an active Delta, then how do those three factors, and, and the fourth being, uh, what are your coastal management issues relative to the integrity of that area over long uh, time period? Um, you know, then the balance of those four uh, criteria, um, you, the idea is that you will select a single site and submit that to NOAA. And then NOAA, you know, it's, 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 we, we take our laws and regulations uh, that are only state lands and, and all the rules that we operate under, NOAA doesn't add any. We use those rules we, we, when we describe the site under those four criteria I just described, education, research, uniqueness, and coastal management issues, and hand it to NOAA and say, here is our preferred site. Do you accept it? as a national estuarine research reserve and and then that's the key the key step so you you um this is obviously a very detailed process um one one you know very well but it is full of input from stakeholders from advisors from people here in louisiana tell us about the people part of this process yeah that's a really good question and so you know, it has multiple components to it. One is the technical aspects of evaluating the sites. And we have a site development committee has almost 90 people. Uh, Simone, you're a member oh, of it. And, oh, and, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've only had one orientation meeting and one kickoff meeting, which really got a lot of feedback to really think through more clearly what the process is of, of, of developing these sites. But, um, you know, that, that is a group that will look through and evaluate criteria and, and start to help us. We have six zones that we're starting with across the coastal zone, and we'll start going through the process of evaluating those sites. Parallel to that is we need to start getting the public engaged on this concept. So we have what we call the roadshow. 
Um, you know, we've given a few talks uh, already. I gave a talk to the Governor's Commission uh, this week. I'm giving a talk to the Wildlife and Fisheries Commission. I think uh, Morgan Crutcher, is, you know, she's giving a talk to the uh, Rotary Club in Morgan City. So you can sign up on our website uh, so that the uh, and and uh, for us to give you a little 20 minute pre virtual presentation on the whole process. And we're trying to uh, roll that out with the uh, when, with the announcement at the CPR meeting with NOAA as our kickoff meeting for people to sign up for the roadshow and we start uh, uh, talking to the public about uh, this process. Now the third component we have the site development committee that does the technical aspects, the roadshow where we go out and start talking about uh, this this process. The third is that once we start narrowing down. Uh, you know, sites that start to rise as to their their ability to meet the criteria and guidelines, we'll do what we call these, um, you know, very specific town hall meetings at the communities that are, are at, at, at those potential sites. Uh, because, I'm, you know, the, if you listen to the stories of what sites have been selected in other states over the last 30 some years, one of the most important criteria is engagement by the community. If the community does not buy into uh, the importance of this site, their commitment to the site, uh, there are even stories of mayors who have, you know, the mayors who have made the, the strongest, um, uh, you know, uh, commitment to uh, uh, supporting a site. It has determined where sites have been located. And so uh, in other states, so it's uh, that that town hall meeting and 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 making sure the communities are behind um, a proposed site is really important. it's great to hear. You know, such an in depth level of engagement across the board, and and I love how you frame that about the importance of you know communities really being bought in and excited about the prospect of having this in their backyard. Um, so, Dr. Twilley, you know, in terms of let's let's fast forward a little bit. Um, let's assume a site is selected that NOAA gives the go-ahead and says, yes, go forth. Um, what happens then? And can you talk a little bit about the timeline um, from now until when uh, the reserve might actually be up and running? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and it's, um, it's, you know, the, there are six steps uh, in the process. Uh, the first step is the governor of the state that wants to have a near has to submit a request to NOAA, then NOAA says, yes, move forward. We've done that. The second step is to go through a site uh, nomination and selection process, which is what we're doing now, which means there are four steps after this step. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, <laughs> and yeah, exactly. So once you have a site selected, uh, you, you have an EIS, you have a, a, you have to develop a management plan around the site. You have to, you know, make sure you get all the the uh, legal aspects of land and the commitments of the state, and so it's a very elaborate process, uh, federal state process of actually designating the site. Nominating the site is okay. Here is the site we're all going to focus on to get it designated, and that designation process can take two to three years. Uh, you know, there's some discussions of how long this takes. Four to six years is what you hear within NOAA. Louisiana is trying to accelerate that, um, and uh, you know, I mean, partly because we have such a 
experience in coastal master plan, plan process. You know, I mean, we know what we're doing here. Uh, a lot of states, believe it or not, just, you know, when they start something like this, we saw that with the Deepwater Horizon. Uh, you know, the other Gulf states getting themselves organized uh, with the funding uh, post Deepwater Horizon. So it's still though, it, that's, a, that's a really in-depth legal process, uh, EIS and, and management plan. And, and the other point I'll make there real quick is that it's during that process and that management plan that you really figure out how and who and how you're gonna manage the site. You know, what entity will be the, the, the managing uh, entity? The state has to play a, a big role in that. Um, the, the, the two distinctions, if you look at all the management plans of all the 29 uh, near sites, and some of them, the universities uh, manage the near, some of them a state agency, such as the Department of Marine Resources manages uh, the site. Um, so uh, there are different versions, but it has to be some state lead in managing uh, the site. And uh, that is part of the development of the master plan. I mean, of the, of the, of the management plan for the near. Well, it's certainly exciting. It's, it's caught a lot of buzz right before the holidays when you had the kickoff at the CPRA meeting and the discussions afterwards. And so um, we're, time flies too, by the way, Dr. Twilley. So, um, yeah, you know, say two or three years, but that's that's really probably nothing. Um, well, I think yeah. for these days, you know what they say about kids, right? The days are long, but the years are short. <laughs> so <laughs> we're hoping that for this nerve process as well. I want to remind folks, Folks that if they want more information, they can go on the C Grant page, www.lacgrant.org slash Delta NER, N-E-R-R. Um, Facebook and Twitter pages have also been established with the same thing, slash Delta NER, N-E-R-R. And questions and comments can be sent to Delta NER at lsu.edu. Before you go, but we have to, have to, have to talk about um, Dr. Twilley, NASA. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a, it's a very exciting project. Uh, NASA is, uh, has a program out there. You know, they've always historically, you know, had an initiative to uh, apply so much of their satellite technology to solving problems on, on the Earth. So it's, uh, it's not just going and exploring space. But it's how do you bring that technology to solve your problems at home? And, and there are three sensors that they're testing that they specifically want to use globally to monitor deltas. It's really cool. And the three sensors, one monitors elevation, makes a lot of sense, right? And because that controls so much of delta dynamics. A second one monitors vegetation type. They can even get down to the species level uh, with these satellites. And the third one is really cool. And that is it actually uh, monitors the elevation of the surface of the water. And from that, they can actually determine the frequency at which wetlands uh, become inundated from river floods and et cetera. So they're testing these three sensors at Wax Lake and Four Lake Bay uh, area. And uh, we were supposed to fly at high water in April of 2020 and then low water in October. Both those flights were canceled because of COVID. Uh, we're rescheduled for April of 21, and then again for October of 21. Uh, I'm I'm optimistic we'll we and they're called missions. Ah. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so we, yeah, we have an April mission and a 
and an October in Michelin. Hopefully, they'll fly this time. Um, and uh, so it's pretty exciting. There's uh, obviously the sensors are flying in fixed wing aircraft, not in satellite. They're testing them in fixed wing aircrafts uh, that will fly out of New Orleans uh, over the area each day. And then we have a ground crew uh, that's in boats sampling what they call ground truthing. Uh, we're sampling, taking samples on the ground while the sensors are flying up in the air. And uh, that's how you calibrate these sensors. And then from those calibrations, then they'll put them on satellites and start you know, taking pictures of deltas around the world. And we, we, are, the, we are the delta that calibrated those sensors. Isn't that cool? That, that's, our, that's our new shirt, Jacques. We are the delta with a capital T, right? Jacques and I are going to make delta dispatches shirts. We are the delta. Um, I am super jealous. Um, as a child, I so badly wanted to go to space camp. And I could never get in. There was too many kids or I don't know if that's what my parents told me. But um, maybe, maybe if I'm a good girl in my 40s, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Dwelly will take me to Space Coastal Camp. <laughs> yeah, Space Coastal Camp. So, you know, we do have a space grant at LSU. Uh, and we've actually talked about interacting between Sea Grant and Space Grant. So maybe we'll uh, make you an honorary Sea Grant Space Grant uh captain it could be a little piece of paper that would make me so happy <laughs> yeah, that was cool um so dr twilly as you know as a as a, a former guest of the show we have to ask you a fun question um to to close this out it helps us to get to know our guests a little bit better a different side of what they do and um in case you didn't get the memo mardi gras is canceled for this year um but eating king cake is not and so as somebody who spent so much time in coastal Louisiana and right before we are even allowed to have king cake, right? Because you're not supposed to have it before. Right. Yeah, I've been um, keeping up with that. Yes. Those rules. Yes. Um, are you a traditional king cake guy? Are you a <laughs> like it stuffed and filled and topped? Well, I have to admit, I you know, when I moved down here, uh, the first king cake I, I ever had, a lot of people don't call it a real king cake, they call it a donut, is Meshes, right here and right in Lafayette. And, um, you know, and I, it's just, you know, you never get off that first impression. And, 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 and it was filled with chocolate. Ah, and I'm a chocolate-holic. And I'm going to tell you, that was the most incredible thing I've ever eaten. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so I, you know, I can't get off that. That was my first. And, and I have, and I do, I, I, the traditional, you know, I, there's a tremendous difference. And it is, uh, you know, it, it truly is, it has a, I, I can truly appreciate the, the traditional uh, king cake, but again, it wasn't my first. I, I respect your loyalty. Remember. <laughs> I respect your loyalty. Okay, there's a second part of that question, and Jacques is forced to answer this um, question as well. Um, is king cake for breakfast acceptable? I think it is acceptable. Yes. You think? Yes. The answer is just. <laughs> I, I mean, it is. I, I mean, I need a little bit more protein in my breakfast, but I think like a king cake as a side to breakfast is great. So, and I love your answer, Dr. Twilley. I mean, the great thing about king cake is you can choose your own adventure. And I, moving back 
discovered the joys of bluebell king cake ice cream, which is a different form, obviously, of king cake, but absolutely delicious. Mostly a traditionalist over here, you know, Randazzo's uh, king cake. But, I, you know, I like to try them all. And that's one yeah. of the great things about living here, right? You can try whatever king cakes you want. And I imagine this Mardi Gras will be eating a lot of king cake, um, eating our, you know, inability to go out in the streets and, uh, you know, partake in the festivities. You know, when I when I think of king cake, and I, again, I go back to my first experience, I also, I don't think of it as breakfast. I think of it as a group event. I, I always think about eating king cake with a group. And, and, and you know, because someone will bring one in to wherever you're working. And, and it's just a great break time, you know, and catch up with people. I said, the social aspects of that, I think, are just uh, are as exciting to me as in my memories about it. When I first experienced was the friendliness of people here. It was you really knew you were getting into my first our first Mardi Gras. You really knew you were getting into something. <laughs> this was not the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> well, now now you've got me sad again because I'm thinking about. All the king cake I'm going to miss since it's, since I won't be in the office this season, but it'll probably be better for my waistline at the end of the day. Because literally, someone had a king cake, sometimes multiple king cakes in our office every day um, during Mardi Gras season. So I'm sure we'll figure out a way to share king cakes and, and uh, enjoy you know the festivities safely regardless. So, well, Dr. Twilley, thank you so much for being on the show and for being our first guest of 2021. Um, huge congratulations to you on your as you transition and, and step down from Sea Grant. But as you've said, you're not slowing down. Certainly, there's just a lot of stuff going on, and we're looking forward to having you back to keep us posted on as all this moves forward. Thank you very much. I, I one of the greatest jobs I've ever had is is serving as Sea Grant director. I I will say that, and to all the you know, the, the activities and the faculty and the students and the, the community leaders, you know, it's just been a, it's just, it's just a great organization. And, and I've been honored to serve as director and I do look forward to going back to my faculty and enjoying um, what time I can continue to contribute. Well, Jacques, you want to close this out with the uh, Coastal Stat of the Week and then uh, we'll get to our next guest. Absolutely. So this week's Coastal Stat is directly relevant to our conversation today. Um, there are some facts from the National Estuarine Research Reserve Association, um, a nonprofit reserve advocacy group about these reserves. And reserves protect more than 1.3 million acres of coastal and estuarine lands that provide flood protection, keep water clean, sustain and create jobs, support fish and wildlife, and offer outdoor recreation. Every year, programs offered at these reserves attract more than half a million visitors and educate approximately 85,000 students and 3,200 teachers. Um, so certainly a lot of great reasons to be excited for one of these heading down to Louisiana. Um, and with that, um, thank you again, Dr. Twilley. We'll be right back after the break with another former guest um, of Delta Dispatches that we haven't touched base with in quite a while, but we're excited to catch up. So stick with us and we'll be right back, back after the break.
we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I am Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And we're excited to have another former guest, although it's been a while, uh, Ms. Karen Gotro, Director of Government Relations with the Louisiana Chapter of the Nature Conservancy. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Karen. Thank you, Jacques. It's good to be with you and Simone early in the new year. We are very grateful to have you and Dr. Twilley helping us kick off Del- uh, Delta Dispatches this year. So um, excited to chat. Thank but, you. But I have to know, Karen, did Santa come for the doggies? <gasps> Santa did come for the doggies. He rewarded them for being such excellent office assistants this year. So <laughs> right. <that's> right. <laughs> they were such great co-workers to you. Yes, they're excellent co-workers. <laughs> okay, Karen, how many, how many dogs are we up to? We're at five. Holding strong at five. <laughs> Holding strong at five. We're going to try to keep it there for a little while. But, and uh, bigs and littles still. Uh, four bigs, one little. You yep. and Alicia Renfro must have a little competition going in terms of number <laughs> of dogs that you own. Hmm. We'll have to. We'll have to get a count. <laughs> yes. My favorite. One of my favorite uh, stories I saw at the end of the year was, you know, humans at what's end at the end of 2020 dogs. This was the best year ever. (laughs) (laughs) I think my dogs would agree. They're not going to know what to do when things go back to normal. Hopefully they'll have that problem soon. (laughs) Well, Karen, you had, um, I know you didn't slow down in 2020 at all. And in fact, you kind of have probably picked up mostly towards the end. We had a couple of big announcements toward the end that, that you've been involved in. One of them um, was a big, pretty big deal and got a lot of both local state and, and national attention, but the governor um, signed an executive order um, about all about climate and he created a Louisiana climate initiatives task force. You are a member. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And uh, we as an organization, the Nature Conservancy and I I personally being involved in coastal issues for many years are really excited about this task force. And what it does is lay the foundation for a very ambitious effort um, to address climate change. And of course, it is a global issue, but it's important that we do what we can um, in our state as well as Uh, using some opportunities associated with climate change, uh, new and developing industries, um, just the climate, the environmental and economic side of it. So um, the goals, they're they're set out in iterations over years, but the net goal, the goal of the, uh, by 2050 is to have uh, zero net emissions by that year. And that's gonna involve cooperation by a number of sectors, again, in looking at new ideas, um, not only reducing emissions, but talking about how we can maybe improve sequestration, whether that's through um, better managing forests or agricultural practices or taking advantage of the use of carbon dioxide by some industries. It's a combination of efforts that uh, will be very important for, again, um, our world and our state. And we're, you know, it's, as we all know, we're seeing the impacts of climate change, uh, I guess, more visibly now in terms of uh, intense storms, just like our very sobering last hurricane season. And of course, uh, those in the coastal arena 
recognize that sea level rising is, is accelerating what we already uh, have as a coastal crisis with coastal land loss. Karen, you, in your professional career, you have been really close to this issue. Um, you worked at DQ. You've also been really close to governors over the time working in this space. What, what, what does it mean to you professionally to have the governor take a step like this, this current governor, do that? Well, I think it's an incredibly important thing for the governor to do. And, and I'll say that this public acknowledgement and embracing the path forward is refreshing. You know, we have climate change has been incorporated into the development of our coastal master plan for many years, but there was kind of, uh, it wasn't put out there so explicitly. And I think to put the problem out there, to ask for the cooperation of a number of sectors and public input in developing solutions on a comprehensive cooperative basis is is so important and i think one thing we need to recognize is that the executive order will come up with uh, the task force is going to be tasked with coming up with recommendations and those are going to range from again best practices to potential legislation and to have this these recommendations developed by a cross sector of participants makes it more likely that these things will be adopted and be a very significant um, move toward the state in addressing this issue. So I think this this leadership has been critical uh, in terms of calling, generating awareness and working toward concrete solutions. Uh, I just really commend the governor and his staff for, for making this a priority. So Karen, you alluded to this earlier, but as part of the task force, there are different working groups, subcommittees that are looking at different slices of this issue. Um, so can you talk a little bit about uh, how the task force is organized and some of the discussions that have happened so far as you all move forward? Right, and I'll start from the, the the smaller group up. The so recognizing that there is expertise across different sectors, there are six different sector committees. Um, I am the co-chair of one with Joey Bro of the Department of Ag and Forestry, the State Department, and it, we probably have uh, the longest title: Agriculture, Forestry, Conservation, and Waste. There's one that's uh, looking at land use buildings and housing, another transportation, another power production, distribution and use, manufacturing and industry, and mining and oil and gas production. So you can see that there is a pretty wide field of, of issues that need to be addressed. So these committees are going to look at emission sources and potential sinks and develop and evaluate strategies. Then we're going to have four advisory groups that will look at the strategies that the sector committees are coming up with, uh, give them some advice. Um, those are the scientific equity, finance, and legal advisory groups. And then there's a larger task force. Most of these sector committees have a task force representative and then another representative to co-chair. Um, they will look at everything bubbling up from these uh, sector committees and advisory committees and public input is a very important part of this process. So they will use all of this information, including information like the update of the greenhouse gas inventory and help shape both the interim recommendations, which are going to be due uh, in February. So this has been a very fast pace, uh, excuse me, fast pace, oh, I can't say fast, haste <laughs> uh, initiative. Sorry about that. Um, and then the 
the all of those groups will continue uh, their discussions, look at these issues more um, deeply, and then the task force will come up with a, a final report in 2022, February of 2022. So a report due in one short month, um, an initial report, but then your work is ongoing. Correct, correct. Um, yes, and we'll do a deeper dive again into the issues and um, go from there. And I don't think the task forces work. You know, we have these deadlines, but I have every confidence that a lot of the work of the task force will continue on past the deadlines. But hopefully we'll generate recommendations that are that are widely embraced and lead to uh, a permanent foundation for addressing climate change in Louisiana. So Karen, you've worked in the space uh, for a while, as Simone mentioned, and, and Louisiana has certainly been a leader on climate adaptation and coastal restoration. What do you think this represents in terms of the opportunity for Louisiana to lead on the climate mitigation side, particularly as an energy producing state? Yeah, well, I think there are incredible opportunities for us to lead. I mean, already a lot of, um, the, a lot of the science regarding the capacity of uh, marshes to sequester carbon has been de- developed around our marshes. Um, we have a transitioning energy industry that will bring a lot of expertise and innovative ideas to this arena. Um, we have an, uh, a very impressive academic contribution to make. We have um, actually Commissioner Strain at the Department of Ag and Forestry um, is looking at opportunities in that community to both uh, improve practices and how they can be um, an important part of our climate picture. So I think there are so many things that poise us to be leaders, you know, including the development of our, obviously our big coastal restoration projects, which will play an important part, not only in being a potential sink, but um, addressing uh, a number of the opportunities to uh, both reduce emissions and sequester. So I think we're poised to be real leaders in Louisiana, um, both because of our energy industry, as well as opportunities for innovative restoration techniques and implementing restoration projects. Karen, is this being run out of the governor's office of coastal activities or or where at the state is this kind of coming from? Right. So the, the chair of the task force is the governor's executive assistant for coastal activities, Chip Klein, and the, the staff, um, particularly Charles Sutcliffe, Harry Borhoff, and Lindsey Cooper are doing a great job of really coordinating and helping these committees, and, and their dedication is, is really paying off. I mean, it's been a very intense and will continue to be an intense effort to fulfill the obligations of the task force and, and lead to the development of very good recommendations. Yeah, those those four have certainly been busy and and um, apparently just like to find big challenges to tackle yeah, <laughs> in the in the governor's <laughs> office. Uh, all kidding aside, they've done uh, really great, strong work, not just taking care of what we have, um, but looking forward um, into the future. So, kudos to them. I do want to switch gears a little bit, um, just to just to talk about some things more on the ground uh, here at home, and um, can't talk about the Atchafalaya area without talking about the nature conservancy and so y'all had a interest a particular interest in that part of the world for some time right karen 
right, well, you know, the Atafalaya Basin is such an iconic habitat. You know, many times when people think of visiting Louisiana, they picture those, that beautiful bottomland swamp, which was, is the remaining largest one in uh, North America, over 300 species call it home. It's uh, a, an incredible resource for both nature and, you know, a very unique culture that has uh, been dependent on the health of the basin and has, it, it's such a rich economic, cultural, and natural resource for Louisiana. And um, it has been one of our national organization's priorities in Louisiana for a long time. We've been thinking, how can we help sustain and make the ecosystem of the Atchafalaya Basin healthier. So uh, we did, uh, Dr. Brian, Brian Piazza of our staff put together a, a, a comprehensive um, set of data about the Atchafalaya. From that, we looked at some potentials where we thought we could make a difference for restoration and uh, have actually invested in, have our uh, Atchafalaya Basin preserve on which we hope to uh, implement some restoration projects that, again, will not only help that area, but provide information that will hopefully be useful in restoration across the basin as well as other areas of the coast. So it, it truly is a priority for us. So the governor signing the executive order to establish a task force focused on restoring and enhancing the Atchafalaya Basin must have been good news to you in the Nature Conservancy. Oh, very much so. Um, one more reason to be grateful to Governor Edwards this year, two, two of our priorities of uh, receiving public attention and awareness and an action plan for. So the, the task force is going to be uh, tasked with looking at the challenges of the basin and coming up with some recommendations uh, regarding how we can both better manage the basin in the future and an important component of it coming up with some funding to do that you know many uh several years back and i apologize for not remembering which year it was but there was a constitutional well going back a little bit in 1998 recognizing the importance of the atchafalaya basin governor foster signed legislation that created the atchafalaya basin program in the department of natural resources since that time there has been legislation um, that switched it, moved it over to the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, which we think is a, a good move because certainly the, the Atchafalaya Basin and how it's managed has a direct impact on the coast as well as coastal restoration projects looking to the basin um, to maybe be a source of the river and be a source of water and sediment. So it was, it, it's, it was I think, very appropriate that that program be integrated into CPRA. I think the DNR staff did a great job with all they had it, but this is a good time to, to integrate it formally. And um, well, we're just really excited that this, this has come at this time. Karen, in our earlier segment, we were discussing with Dr. Twilley, you know, and looking at Louisiana's coast, just how varied each part of the coast is. And certainly that's true for the Atchafalaya Basin. So what are some of the particular issues um, or aspects of the basin that make it such a unique as uh, part of Louisiana's coast? Well, um, it is very unique. I mean, just the, the Atchafalaya River, which by congressional mandate receives 30% of the combined flow of the Red and Mississippi Rivers, 
goes from this um, area around Simsport down to the Gulf. And it is, again, provides an incredible habitat. It also serves as a flood risk reduction function, the floodway itself between the, the levees and um, also serves as navigation. One thing that we believe we need to focus on is how to maintain the incredible resources of the basin in a way that that integrates all of those components. So it's just, you know, it's a it's one of the areas, it's such a dynamic river. It's one of the few areas of our coast that is actually building land right now. So we need to uh, keep that dynamic, but uh, there are alterations that are causing areas of the basin, some deeper canals that were cut to um, build with sediments, uh, to start filling with the heavier river bottom sediments. So we need to look at a way to address the challenges of this important uh, river marine basin, as well as continuing to provide the resources that it provides to our nation and our state. I've, I've been to many a meeting where the mayor of Morgan City has talked about almost drowning in sediment, um, where the neighbors right right next door in Terrebonne would love to have some of it. And so um, and you can't discount the challenges that they have in that area, um, although it does provide flood protection, but they have water quality issues and backwater flooding and, and other issues like that. And so um, it's good to see the Atchafalaya get um, some much deserved attention from the governor, Karen. Um, you got, those are two pretty big doozies <laughs> that you'll be working on in um, 2021. What else are you looking forward to working on? Um, any challenges or opportunities that you see in this upcoming year? Well, um, this past year has, I think, provided attention to the challenges that we face. And it's my hope that we can continue to build on the knowledge that the Climate Task Force, the Chafalaya River Basin Task Force um, is going to, again, lay the foundation for. I'm very excited about another program that we're working on with the state and Corps, and we'll be engaging stakeholders is the Sustainable Rivers Program, which is going to be looking at are there opportunities within the authorities related to flood control and navigation and maybe tweak the flow of the Chafalaya a little bit to get some ecosystem benefits. So um, it's hard to say any looking forward to more of our, our coastal program, maybe uh, enlarging some of the reefs that we've built with the state as partner and, and many of those state and private partners. So I think 2021 is going to continue to provide opportunities to um, both help the environment and the economy of Louisiana. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, we are so grateful for you, Karen, to come on. Um, you know, it's a busy start to the year and you've got a lot to look ahead to. So we appreciate the updates and would love to have you back as these two initiatives progress. Before we let you go, though, it's a Delta Dispatches tradition. It's time for our fun question. And, you know, since tomorrow is King's Day, which means you officially can have king cake, do not do not get at do not jump the gun here, folks. We've made it this far, right? Just wait <laughs> one more day and then you can have all the king cake you want. So we asked Dr. Twilly too, um, but are, what is your favorite king cake, Karen? Huh, I would say um, 
praline king cake. Although I, like I have to I like it. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna um I'm gonna take a page answer the question um like Eric Johnson would um the last one I ate is <laughs> ah. <laughs> my favorite one. Um but praline, I like it. Very greedy, Karen. Yeah, well, it's praline and cream cheese. Okay, I don't have to say that. If you're going to do it, do it over the top. Go all in. Um, I'm also a knife in the box. I confessed that during the break, and I feel like I should confess that on the airwaves, is that I do leave the knife in the box because mm -hmm. I am lazy, and that is convenient. Oh, that, you, you're not supposed to take the uh, knife out of the box until the cake's gone. Yes. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. As long as you're not a, uh, you see the baby sticking out of the piece and you just like leave it like that for the next person type of person. Who would do that? What kind of person does that? Nobody what on kind of person? <laughs> My kids have learned the tried and true Louisiana tradition of flipping over your piece of king cake to <laughs> and switching with your brother or sister oh. if you realize that you have the baby. So it's like a Louisiana child rite of passage, right? All right, Karen, well, wishing you a lot of delicious king cake this carnival season. Um, and, you know, best of luck with the work that you um, are, are focusing on at this first part of the year. I'm sure we'll be in touch and would love to have you back on soon. Well, thank you both. I enjoyed it. And I think this is a great source of, of information. I appreciate y'all putting your hearts into Delta Dispatch. Oh, that was nice. I'm going to have to put more of my heart into it, Karen. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think you should We'll close out with the coastal right. voice of the week. Abigail from Ville Platte, Louisiana says, simply, this is our home. Don't forget that you can add your coastal voice at MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. Well, thank you to all of our listeners. And reminder, you can go and subscribe to our podcast, like, rate, and share us with your friends. We've got over 150 episodes for you to enjoy and catch up on. And no doubt 2021 will bring more great episodes of Delta Dispatches. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our guests and we'll see y'all later, alligators. Bye.